What's up, my guys? I'm back here with another episode of the Opinion of Love podcast. This week, we're going to be covering book two of the Book of Five Rings. This is called The Scroll of Water. Now, The Scroll of Water is essentially his sword style that he used to teach at his school in Japan. And as we learned last week, he teaches two swords under heaven style. Now, the thing about this is for everything he tells you here, he also gives you an individual, for most of it, he gives you a individual strategy application and a general strategy application. He calls it group strategy. I'm going to say it's general strategy because most of the time strategy is implemented on a large scale, not a personal scale. Now, I just, I, I highlighted a ton of this book. And... One of the cool things about the Kindle is that I can export my notes directly to my computer in a CSV or a PDF file. So I opened up the PDF and I'm going to work through this up to about page 68, I think was the Book of Fire. And we're going to open up with this one. Regarding the principle of strategy, even though I may describe the situation as though talking about an individual, it's essential to understand this with broad vision. And he hammers on this one a lot. So... Even though you might be working on an individual technique or you have individual strategic priorities, what Musashi is talking about here is that the micro and the macro are heavily influenced by each other. If you have a soldier, a group of soldiers who are all trained the same and all understand the same strategic priorities and all that, they're, uh, they're probably going to perform better than a group of soldiers who don't know each other have never trained with each other, don't have the same levels of training, aren't cohesive enough to stick together when the fighting gets challenging. And in other terms, you can apply this to a lot of things. You can apply this to business. You can apply it to, you know, whatever you really want. Honestly, business is the first one that comes to my mind. And this is kind of mirrored in stuff like Ray Dalio's principles. The idea that the individual, while on the surface doesn't seem important, is crucially important in the grand scale of things because this individual, even though they might not, they might not look important, one person can influence another who can influence another who can influence another. And that can expand. I think I remember a, uh, it was a social media thing. But within like six layers of a person's friend group on social media, they'd have reach to about a million people. So just kind of apply that here. One person can go to 100, 100 can go to 1,000, 1,000 can go to 10,000, right? So what you're, you're looking at there is the idea that the individual is incredibly valuable because the individual can influence the group. Now... This is something that I like. And he says, if you content yourself with reading what I write here, it will be impossible for you to reach a high level in the way of strategy. Now, I read a lot. Now that I have a Kindle, I have all kinds of martial arts books. And I understand what he's talking about very well. Because I've read, right, Kodokan Judo. Now, I haven't sat down and read everything. I kind of skim through it, look at the techniques and 
go through the individual groups of techniques. And then I say, okay, I'll kind of try this one out or I'll try that one out or I'll see a video on YouTube for jujitsu or wrestling and I'll say, oh, I'll try that out. Well, I've read a lot of technical stuff for grappling and I get my shit kicked in a lot when I try that stuff. So, you know, I mean, d just this morning, right? I thought about like three things that I wanted to do for jujitsu. One was I figured out could you do a paper cutter choke from the cradle? Because I learned a method of submitting someone from side control by Keenan Cornelius in which you take the lapel of a gi, you lace it under the shoulder, then you twist the person up onto their side or push them up onto their side. You pass the lapel under their back so they can't move their far side shoulder off of the mat. Well, something I've struggled with is getting their back off the mat. So I found it easier to cradle people, which in, if you don't know what the cradle is, it's a wrestling technique where you lace typically one hand through the legs and one hand behind the neck and you close your grip in the middle. So these people are, they're stuck basically in, in the cradle. And I couldn't do it with the lapel grip, but I was certainly able to get the paper cutter. Now that worked, but it takes some refining, right? And then I applied another idea well, since we have a wrestling coach, you know, we were talking about the Russian tie the other day. And with the Russian tie, if someone gets the grip on your wrist, well, how do you clear it? And people struggle with that. Well, what the coach mentioned is, well, you have the primary grip. If he's grabbing your other hand, you can just open it up, let go of the grip, and shoot for a takedown. Well, I was thinking about how to set up takedowns, right? And I've struggled with this for a while because I lost a lot of the confidence in my wrestling from jiu-jitsu because of stuff like guillotines and Dar's chokes. And having a coach say, oh, just make this technique change. Well, then I went in and I said, okay, I'm not going to focus on the collar sleeve grip that I usually get. I'm going to focus on double wrist control or at least single wrist control. And I was opening people up to single leg takedowns really easily. Now I was getting there, but the threat was getting my back taken. So what do I have to do next? I have to cut the corner and either finish the single or switch to a double or, you know, stand up and go for a throw. But in order to make that technique truly successful, I have to take steps to practice it, which is what Musashi is saying here. I can read all I want about setting up the single leg takedown. But if I'm not figuring out how to set it up, oh, my shoulder hurts, not figuring out how to set up the the entry, I'm not going to get anywhere because I can just fucking muscle my way through a double leg, but then I'll put myself in a bad position. Now, his next not piece of wisdom that I got. It is necessary to ponder well by putting yourself into the situation. Guess what this sounds like? Visualization. And guess what science says is very important for athletic performance or performance in general? Visualization. Because your brain can't really tell the difference between you physically doing something and you mentally doing something. Now, that's pretty much all i got to put into that one. In daily life, as well as in strategy, it is necessary to have an ample and broad mind and to carefully keep it very straight. Not too tight and not too loose. This, I like this a lot. Because what he's saying here... Keep an open mind, but don't keep so open a mind that 
anything gets to you. Right. If you're an open-minded person, well, of course something that you hear that might at first sound kind of odd might be accepted by you if someone comes out with an argument and they support the facts and they, you know, substantiate their claims. Then there, that's another piece of information to be, you know, assimilated into your system. Well, the same person, or a different person in this case, could come up to you with some insane idea, right? Avian birds are flying around in blue UFOs and they're adopting cats. That's it. That's the idea. And if you have too open a mind, you're going to accept that and be like, hey, man, next time you're at Starbucks, you're going to tell the person, uh, yeah, some of my, my boys told me that bird aliens are flying around in blue UFOs and they're just adopting cats. That's why, uh, that's why feral cat populations have decreased. And you're going to get institutionalized for saying that, I would bet. Now, there's a balance there. Of course, you have to keep it. I mean, that's exactly what you're saying. There's a balance to keeping your mind opened and a little closed. Even at a, t even at a calm time, the mind is not calm. Also something I love. Because he's right. You could be totally calm ex on the exterior, and you could just be losing your shit inside. And it doesn't have to be that extreme. If you're just sitting down reading something, you could be so engrossed in this book that you're just full on visualizing the events. That's not a calm mind. That's an active mind. And something that I've fallen prey to before, the large as well as the small must keep their minds straight and not overestimate themselves. I've done this a few times and he's right there's not really any explanation you need for that you shouldn't overestimate yourself it can be hard though not to it can also be very hard not to underestimate yourself finding that spot where you know exactly what your capabilities are can be really challenging and i struggle with that from time to time the important thing is to polish wisdom and the mind in great detail Keep learning. That's really all this means. As long as you're practicing your skills, they will get better over time. As long as you're growing your knowledge base, you will get better at other things over time. And the follow-up to this is sharpen wisdom. You will understand what is just and unjust in society and also the good and evil of this world. Then you will come to know all kinds of of arts, and you will tread different ways. In this manner, no one in the world will succeed in deceiving you. There's a quote that Musashi said that related to this a little bit, I think. And he said, never put a sword in the hand of a man who can't dance. I'm paraphrasing that a bit. But Musashi was very devoted to the idea of the arts. And this idea that if you wanted to be the best samurai you could be, you also had to be a good calligrapher, and you also had to be a good dancer, and you also had to spend time doing all these other things. So that what, when you, at the end of the day, were at your duel, and you have to cut this opponent down, otherwise you will die, you are going to know that because of 
all these other things you practiced, how you can best handle yourself. And he has another quote, see the way, know the way in one thing, you will see the way broadly. That is something that I like to live my life by, even though I forget this quote a lot. Your look must be broad and ample. Looking and seeing are two different things. Look powerfully, see gently. This one was kind of confusing for a bit. Mostly it comes in the wording. I mean, if I'm, you know, trying to extract something from this, it's that you have to kind of scour things in the sense that if you want to get better at something, well, the way forward might not always be very direct. In, let's say, law, for example, this is a place where it could probably be applied pretty well. If you are a lawyer handling criminal law and someone dissolved a body in some kind of acid, right? Well, if you don't know anything about solvents or, you know, chemicals that dissolve things, well, how are you going to be a good lawyer when it comes to, oh, this is the evidence? How can I take you seriously if you know nothing about chemical compounds that can dissolve human bodies? Well, if you start reading a bit about that, then you're going to know how best to take your case, right? So that's what I think he means by this one. It is fundamental in strategy to know the sword of the adversary without ever looking at it. Study your opponents, know what makes them tick, and exploit that. This is very applicable in business, outside of strategy, because if you are taking something, for example, a product launch, you're in an industry that is very saturated, and you and this main opponent launch very similar products, often around the same time. Well, what are you going to do? How do you make your product the best? Well, there's a lot of things you can do that aren't particularly ethical, corporate sabotage being one of them. And if you want your product to be the best one, it should stand on its own without advertising or hype as the best product. But if it's too close to call, and really it would be a matter of buyer's preference, well, then you have to figure out how are we going to succeed here? And then it becomes, okay, well, we know that our opponent has released these devices typically around this time, and we need to come in before then. We also need to have a huge marketing push around, before, around, and after the launch so that they are drowned out. So they have to spend more to look on the same level of exposure as we have so that people know we're the best, right? At least that's some of the things I'm thinking about right now. If you are preoccupied about moving the sword fast, the pathway of the sword will be troubled and that will cause the sword to move slowly. If you're thinking about something, you're probably not going to do it right. 
that seems to be the case I've experienced in most grappling. In I typically see this in sports. Um, I've also experienced this in writing things. When I'm thinking a lot about how I want to word something, it typically doesn't work the same way. And this doesn't mean do this for editing. What it means is when I'm writing the first draft, you have to just go. And then you come back and edit it and make the word changes and, you know, pick out how things are going to fit better here and there. But if you're preoccupied about moving quickly, you're going to move slowly. Now he starts talking about the sword style itself. And he's talking about this idea, really, of empty mind. He doesn't specifically call it anything, you know, particular outside of ku, but there is also a Japanese term for this called mushin, which means a state of no mind, which makes a lot of sense, especially in what he's talking about. And the direct quote here is, this is not having in your mind the idea of adopting a guard position. So in sword fighting, there's a bunch of guards. Uh, in Western fencing, there's a high guard, a low guard, and a middle guard. In Nitenichi Ryu, there's five guards. Left, right, top, middle, low. So what he's talking about here is the idea, really, that you don't want to start off-balanced, off I would say. You want to start in a place where you have total flexibility to move in accordance with the situation. And this goes on further. I highlight another quote after this. You hold your sword in the high position, and if in accordance with the moment you lower it a little, your guard will become that of the middle level. And then if it becomes advantageous to raise it a little, your guard will again become the high one. So that sounds like a very common sense tactic, but most of the time, I've noticed there's a lot of a lot of people struggle with this. Adapting to a situation can be hard when you don't really understand what's going on, or when there's a lot of information coming at you at once and you're trying to make sense of it. Something that you kind of have to figure out at some point if you're dealing with a lot of information at once, is how to selectively block out the stuff that isn't important. And the body does this on its own a little bit, but you have to refine it, right? Um, I know from sports is really the best example I have of this. In football, when I played football, there could be a ton of people around, and they could be super loud, but I couldn't hear very much. I could hear really the center, and that was about it. I could hear the quarterback sometimes, but I couldn't hear much else. Very rarely could I hear my coach, and that, unless I knew to listen for them, then I wouldn't hear them very often. But this also applies to things like wrestling and jujitsu. It's much harder to block out sounds of people who are four feet away from you. So an opponent's coach, your coach, the ref. You want to block these people out, but at the same time you don't. Because that can be critical information, right? 
Um, I very much think that adaptability and flexibility are things that you you have to train in a way, in the sense that you can't be so stuck to applying the fundamentals or applying whatever of a of a certain thing that you do that it paralyzes you. You have to be flexible enough to say, okay, I'm good enough at the fundamentals here and I'm good enough to trust myself in this being successful in this scramble or for, for example. And you know, that, that happens over time. I know people like, okay, people who work on a farm or whatever, or any job really, you figure out ways to get around like the specifics and you figure out how I can do certain things in way more efficient time frames based on experience. And this one, I took a note on it actually, but this was him talking about group strategy in relation to guards. The placement of troops corresponds to the guard position. And what is necessary is to aim at creating an opportunity to win. Letting a situation fixate is bad. So really just don't stagnate. And the problem is him saying corresponds to the guard position is kind of vague. It is, it is vague because it's like, okay, well, what are we doing? Like, is every troop right guard or left guard or high guard? Like, how would you have troops all in high guard if they're stacked in rows? It, it's kind of confusing, so I'm not going to worry about it. When you get in close to your opponent, whatever the circumstances, penetrate forcefully and avoid shrinking as though you were comparing heights. This is him talking about stepping into strike and he he calls it comparing heights his naming for stuff is still so literal like it, it was it was kind of funny to me there's one i put a note on because it was just hilarious um when he's talking about how you should duel he wants you to stand as tall as you can then there was the other thing of pushing from one corner, which was in the last book, where you face your palm down on the scabbards of your sword, ready to draw, and then you push them a little bit so that you know that there's going to be positive contact when you draw. And, you know, he's going to go into to it more, but he kind of, he weaves it in and out of strategic concepts. In strategy, we know how to win with the sword. It is necessary to first learn the five forms of striking in conjunction with the five guard positions. Mastering by this means the pathway, Michi, of the sword. The body will be free and the mind will come alive to grasp the cadences of the way. Your sword and your technique will be naturally remarkable, since your body will be able from head to toe to move with the free mastery. It is in this way that you will be victorious first over one, then over two, and that you will finally be able to understand what it is what is good and what is bad in strategy. He does, when, when he says um, first over one, then over two, he does put a focus on fighting like 10 people at once, which is kind of weird. But I get it because he was an actual military commander. He did fight in wars, so who knows. This is a quote. 
that a lot of people have come up with. But here's Musashi's version. Be victorious today over what you were yesterday. Tomorrow, be victorious over your clumsiness and then also over your skill. Practice in accordance with what I have written without letting your mind deviate from the way. Be better tomorrow than you are today. It's really all he means by that. And practice a lot. If you don't practice, you're not going to get good. A thousand days of training to develop, 10,000 days of training to polish. Sounds a lot like the 10,000 hours rule, but based on the way that Musashi advocates you train, which is from morning till night, this sounds a lot like the 100,000 hour rule. So, I think, you know, when you're talking about stuff like this, a thousand days of training developed, 10,000 to polish, he's talking about long-term mastery. Because you're not going to get a standing army uh, 11,000 days. Let's figure out how much time that is. 11,000 divided by 365. Oh, it's only 30 years. Just uh, just 30 years of training every day. Yeah, you're not preparing a standing army with that much training unless they were like Spartans and they were trained from birth. So this is essentially lifelong mastery. And he's right. You have to keep it up. And I've, I've thought about this a lot, especially with my sports career. At some point, I'm going to get bored of it, and my training is going to reduce. But how much do you have to train if you're already one of the best ever, right? Like, if I get to the level I want to be, and I'm up there in top five, well, if I decide I'm going to stop competing, I don't have to train as hard as I did. I don't have to keep myself in shape for competitions, even though it's generally a good idea to keep yourself in shape. So there's a lot of pressures that just fade away, right? And then it's, okay, well, how much training do I need to maintain my skill level? Is that two days of training a week for like two hours? Is it one day of training a week for three hours? Like, who knows? I'm not there yet, so I don't get to, I don't really get to know. But it, it seems like you just, you get to do, decline with your training over time. Even then, though, I would probably take up lifting again more. Um, just because I I don't want to be a... I, I work around a lot of elderly people, and I just don't want to, like, degrade to the point where I'm not self-sufficient. Um, in training to strike your adversary a mortal blow, you cannot even think of small and feeble techniques especially if you are seeking to gain advantage in combat or armor is worn. You cannot even think about small techniques. These techniques have to be motor muscle memory. They have to be a part of you. If they're not, you're not going to do them right. And he's hammering on this again, right? He's talking about training. He's talking about train from morning till night. When in this manner you have finished polishing, you will spontaneously acquire freedom and excellent ability. And in this way, you'll be able to gain access to supernatural power. This is the vital essence of the practice of the method of the art of war. Mastery is what he's talking about here. 
that's it. And even though he puts up these insane standards for mastery, I mean, you know, people say 20 years to be an expert is an expert a master, who knows? But at the same time, it's it's a form him saying supernatural power is kind of interesting. It really jumps out to me. Because I've noticed this watching super high-level people. Their understanding of if you took a, a beginner and you took a master, actually let's say if you took an intermediate competitor or whatever, and a true master, and they had to explain the same technique, the way they would explain it is vastly different. Because the details that are picked up in 20, 30 years of practice are so much different than the details that are picked up in 7 to 10, right? I mean, if I'm thinking about it today, a Kimura has been around since the 50s, since Masahiko Kimura. But the way people are using it today is something that I don't think you would have ever imagined. And it's because there's a consistent progression. And that progression has to be mastered. But how do you master it if it keeps going on? So this is, especially with this Two Swords Under Heaven style, it's very simple in description. But I feel like in practice, it's extremely complicated. Because fighting with one sword is hard enough. Fighting with two? That could be a, a real big stumbling block for most people. And the thing is, I would I would assume, he never fought anybody else who used two swords in a duel. He did fight a dude who had a sickle with a chain on it. That was kind of cool. And a, like, flail on the other end. So two swords versus sickle flail man. Um, not really. He beat him, but I don't know, you know how you apply the style to that. I think you just kind of have to know what to do from an like innate feeling. He continues the last quote I said with, it is important to drive your opponents towards a difficult place. Drive them back without relenting so that they will not have a chance to turn their heads to recognize the difficulty of the place. Push the pace. If you push the pace, people will crack. When people crack, you can beat them. So, applies all throughout all of history. Really, that's it. Every strategy, in one way or another, has to do with tempo. Now, they're not all high tempo all the time, and they're not all low tempo all the time. There's a lot of mixed situations. Like, if you have submarine patrols, they don't really need to be high tempo. If you have a nighttime assault, it should probably be pretty high tempo. And this is the funny note that I had. The first consists in attacking before your opponent. I call this attacking before your opponent, with a little translation. Kin no sin. Like, okay, yeah, Musashi, you call attacking before your opponent attacking before your opponent. Like, we know this. That's kind of how that, that's literally exactly what it should be. He proceeds by saying that the second consists in taking the initiative when your opponent attacks first. I call it taking initiative at the time of an attack. 
Tainosen. I'm really just, I'm understanding here that Japanese is so much more efficient than English. They just said two, four, six, eight words in three. Like, guys, come on, English, can we get it together? The third consists in taking the initiative, and when the two adversaries are getting ready to attack each other, I call it the initiative at the time of a reciprocal attack. Tai tai no sen. Four words for like, I don't know, 10? Probably 15, maybe 20. Taking the initiative is an essential for strategy, since it's through this that a quick winning combat will be determined. This has for a long time been a key part of strategy. Brutal assaults that are done as fast as possible are oftentimes better than immensely planned efforts that happen over a longer period of time, right? That's why siege warfare was a whole other game because it was good. It was really good until someone figured out like, oh, we're just going to put Tetsudos up so you can't shoot us with your arrows. And then we're going to get a battering ram. We're just going to kick your fucking door in and kill everyone. So this is a, this is like a number. This is probably an absolute rule of strategy. Be fast. Move first. When your opponent attacks you, pretend to be weak and remain without a reaction. At the moment when he approaches, make a broad and vigorous move back, then with a leap, faint and attack. In the instant he relaxes, strike him straight on and with force. I've seen that in fencing before. It's pretty effective if you're good with it. It's kind of this... I. He talks about it later. He calls it infecting. This idea that if you're relaxed, your enemy is going to be relaxed. And you want to be relaxed enough to where they get, they lose their edge. And you can turn the, the pace up and you can, you can beat them. It's pretty interesting, actually. Holding down on the headrest is a way of conducting yourself in combat which you do not allow your opponent to raise his head. I didn't understand how this applied to swordsmanship, but it immediately clicked with me for wrestling. One of the first things you're taught, collar, tie the neck, hold the head down. If you can get the front headlock, fantastic. But I don't get how this one applies to sword fighting. Like, it just doesn't really make that much sense. And... He says here, that is the sense of holding down on the headrest. For example, when your opponent means to attack you, you grasp the letters ATT in attack. So it kind of implies it to be like a predicting what your opponent's going to do. But it's still kind of hard for me to, to get a total grip on. Like, I get how it applies to other things but not how it applies to sword fighting. This is a little off-the-wall thing he said here. You must get over a critical passage with the idea that this event is unique. Sure. And passage in this context means a moment, really. One of the, the problems with reading these books and kind of interpreting them is that old writing was weird compared to what we have today. And he 
is arguing here that if something super specific happens to you, you have to move past that knowing that it was a unique event and that it might not happen again. And then he just jumps back into another, another like military piece of it is necessary to make a rapid assault while your adversaries are shooting their bows or firing their guns. As soon as the enemy acts, break their actions by reacting in accordance with principle. Thus, you will obtain victory. Now, okay, I know a good lot about World War I, and making rapid assaults while your adversaries were shooting bows and guns at you typically didn't work out very well. It, uh, it wasn't too good. That's how most people died in World War I. That and disease. Um, and gas. But I'm just going to give him the shadow, the principle, or not principle of the doubt. <sighs> Benefit of the doubt that guns in like, what, 15, 1600s Japan were absolute shit. So, sure. And most people never fired arrows head on anyways. They always fired them in an arc. So if you can outrun where the arrows are going to land, then you're going to be fine. But... Archers can knock and shoot pretty quickly. So, kind of depends. And this is what he was talking about, a strategy called crushing. You do not crush only with your foot. You must also know how to crush with your body, with your mind, and also, of course, with your sword, in order to interdict any second move by your adversary. It is in this way that you can take the initiative in each situation. So, crushing really just seems to be putting pressure on people. And it doesn't have to be physically crushing them. It just has to be putting pressure on people in a way that they're bound to make mistakes by going on the defensive. That's what it seems like. This is where he gets into some real deep shit. Becoming your opponent. This is the thinking you do when you put yourself in his place. In life, there exists a tendency to overestimate the power of the adversary. He's correct. I oftentimes walk into competitions thinking my competitor is going to be way better than he is. Now, I've run into some competitors who whoop my ass, but most of them aren't that much better than me, if they are. There's a reason they're in the white belt division. And, frankly, I think a lot of people do this with general things, right? You want to go somewhere, but then you're thinking, oh, well. Okay, here's a, here's a great example. People want to start going to the gym, but they're kind of embarrassed that they're out of shape. Well, where else are you going to go to get in shape? People at the gym aren't really going to talk to you or fucking roast you for being a little bit out of shape, because most people at the gym are a little bit out of shape, right? It's, it's a situation where such a small part of what that culture is, like gym culture. People think a gym, and the first thing that pops into their head for most people, for me at least, is like fucking Arnold Schwarzenegger doing the front double bicep in the mirror in basically nothing, and being jacked. Or powerlifters just benching five, 600 pounds, and then they get intimidated. 
when the reality is most people at most commercial gyms are just like you who want to go and get fit because they might be a little out of shape. Now, if you're going to like West Side Barbell, yeah, they're going to judge the fuck out of you. But most guys in West Side Barbell are also like 300 plus pounds and pretty, pretty fat. But they lift a shit ton of weight. So it's a trade-off. Until we started getting power lifters who are jacked like bodybuilders and also shredded, and they're super strong. That's where that's where it gets weird. But that was the book of water. And this episode is going to be coming to a close here. Now, I hope you enjoyed this one. This book is more specifically military strategy. The book of fire is here. I have a couple things from here. It's talking about the individual group strategy thing. And it's, it's more so conceptual pieces. Like here's a, here's a quick thing. In group strategy, it's important to know how to irritate your adversaries. Launching a violent assault at a place your adversaries have not thought of before their minds have a chance to stabilize. Off-balancing your opponent and exploiting the fact that they're off-balanced. That's, that's the book of fire. It's more direct strategy. This one was individual, some conceptual, and then just some life advice. Like he just sprinkles life advice in the middle of things like, oh yeah, this is how you kill someone. But like, take some time to relax, you know, but I'm, I just finished the book of fire yesterday, so I'm solid on it. Um, I'm doing the book of wind now and we're going to compress those two into one show and I'm probably going to throw the fifth book in there as well. I don't think I'm going to get to the 40 rules of strategy thing, but we'll take it we see it um i just i had a i had a rough afternoon i was eating i was eating chicken and it was it was like skinless chicken right because i'm trying to get shredded and i was i took a bite and all of a sudden it felt like this fucking bone was in my um was in my gum so i go well i pull the chicken out of my mouth and there's a bone shard and I go into the bathroom and there's a piece of that bone that had broken off and it was stuck in between my gum and my tooth. So I go and I try and push it out with my thumb, but my thumb was too slippery. So then I went and got a towel and I just really dug it in there and pushed it out and I, it, it hurt a good lot. Luckily, I, I, it didn't hurt too much, but it hurt a lot. Um... That was probably the highlight of my day so far. But I will see you guys on Friday. Um, schedule's kind of weird this week. So I, I'm doing my best to get out to you on Friday. But, you know, just know. All right, I will see you guys then. Remember, spread the show, do all that cool stuff, and peace out. <laughs>